Welcome to Media Tribe. I'm Shauna Kinnear and this is the podcast that tells the story behind the story. It's an opportunity for you and I to step into the shoes of the most extraordinary media folk who cover the issues that matter most. The sort of penny dropped in that we're like, wow, actually what was happening here was that Russia was not just running these pages for Trump, they were running all these sort of pages all across the board. Pro-black pages, pro-white pages, pro-Second Amendment gun law pages, anti-Second Amendment, anything to to try and uh, stir division here in the US. My guest today is CNN's Donny O'Sullivan. Donny is a politics and technology reporter and works with CNN's investigative unit tracking online disinformation campaigns targeting the American electorate. Donny O'Sullivan, it is so lovely to chat to you. Shauna, thank you so much for having me. Well, you're obviously on the campaign trail for the 2020 presidential elections, being uh, an amazing political slash tech reporter at CNN. But do you want to first tell our audience about how you got into journalism, Donny? Yeah, um, I mean, well, my mom will tell you that uh, she has photos of me when I was three or four years old. Um uh, at the coffee table in our sitting room at home in Kerry, um, behind behind it, uh, pretending I was uh, on the TV and interviewing the teddy bears. So uh, my mom would say I started started there, but um, I uh, I got into it. I did study journalism in college, but I I, I went to UCD in Dublin and started uh, working on the college newspaper there and got very very involved in that, and it was great crack. Um, and then I got lucky. I got an internship with um, Storyful, which was set up by Mark Little, who used to be the RTE Washington correspondent and host of Primetime. Um, and that co- company, Storyful, was was set up about 10 years ago to basically uh, vet what you're seeing on social media, particularly videos, uh, particularly uh, videos and breaking news scenarios to, to uh, ways to prove that the video is what it claims to be. Um, so that's what uh, I, I got in that way. And, and that's sort of been what I've been doing ever since. So from Storyful, um, you obviously, you know, succeeded in the internship in the sense that they employed you for money. And then you went on to CNN to to work at the social media team. Is that right, Tony? That's right. Uh, I was working with Storyful in Dublin and uh, then eventually moved out here to the US with, with them in New York. And basically what Storyful is, is they provide a service to newsrooms. They're a sort of small social media news agency and that, you know, if a bomb goes off or a terrorist attack somewhere happens in the world, obviously the first people on the ground these days are not reporters. They're just regular people with their camera phones. They post that up in social media. Storyful's job is to find that footage uh, and then make sure that you know it's real that that it is it shows what it claims to show um that it's not something from a different city or a different time um and yes yeah, cnn uh, was in the in the market looking for folks to do that um to help them obviously in their breaking news uh so i joined uh cnn to do that about uh, about 4 years ago 4 and a half years ago right before the 2016 election actually 
It's amazing timing because, you know, those skills weren't around, I guess, in our industry. So somebody like you and your skills, you were really needed. So so that was the CNN Discovery team, as far as I remember, Doni. But how did you then pivot um, to becoming a reporter that's reporting, covering the intersection of technology and politics? So I was, the, the team, what, what we were doing out at CNN was, you know, anytime there'd be a terror attack or something like that in the UK or shooting here in the US, uh, getting those pictures and videos on air and figuring out what was real and what was fake in social media. That was my job. Um, and then in January 2017, um, around the time as Trump was coming into office, being inaugurated, that's when the U.S. intelligence community, the FBI, CIA, NSA, all those agencies put out a, a, um, a joint statement saying that Russia had tried to interfere in the 2016 election here, and that they had used social media as part of their campaign to do that. And that's when um, CNN sort of turned around to me and uh, the head of the investigative unit, Patricia DiCarlo, uh, sort of walked over to the social media desk uh, one day in New York. And she was asking, does anybody know how we could track, you know, how popular false stories were, how popular fake news was, you know, in, in the run up to the 2016 election? And I sort of spoke up um, and that's sort of when, uh, you know, it sort of clicked, I think, for them to say, oh, you're the guy who sort of figures out what's real and what's fake in breaking news. Can you figure out what's real and what's fake when it comes to, you know, these accounts or what Russia was doing on social media to, in, in the run up to the election? And uh, that's when I sort of started moving more into this investigative role. I mean, that's quite amazing because 2017, nobody really knew the level of an interference from the Russians, even, you know, at, at that point. So it does feel like, uh, you know, you were the, certainly there at the right time, but you genuinely had, you know, the, the exact skills that they needed. Um, and obviously your role then, of course, has kind of, it's transformed into a, a really key and strategic role within the current elections in 2020, because fake news and, and disinformation is is very much tied of the agenda and, and something that every um, news outlet is at least trying to stay on top of. So, Tony, do you want to go into kind of some of the stories that you have covered in this role at CNN? Yeah. I mean, when we first started looking into this thing in 2017, we were trying to figure out what was it that Russia could have been doing on Facebook and on social media that would be so consequential that the CIA would be talking about it. Um, so we started digging around and, you know, everybody was sort of operating on the assumption that uh, maybe Russia was, you know, running like these sort of pro-Trump pages or something like that. So I spent many, many months in, in, in 2017 basically looking for that and sort of looking for Facebook pages that might have sort of some telltale signs of them not, maybe not being run from inside the US, whether it's broken English or you know, links to pages that we then figure out might be tied to Russia that are registered in Russia or things like that. Um, but as we were doing this, I sort of kept coming across uh, Black Lives Matter pages, which is a black civil rights group here in the US, um, pages that looked just a little off to me. Um, pages with, with sort of weird expressions, uh, weird use of of, of punctuation, actually, Um uh, but when I saw them, I said, well, I don't think they could be part of this Russian campaign because we're looking for pro-Trump pages. And, you know, these pages were very much not pro-Trump pages. Um, but 
I came across it a few times and I was very much, you know, about a year at CNN at this point and very much working in the background. I didn't have sources in any of the social media companies or anything like that. Um, But I was down in Washington in our office in Washington and uh, I mentioned to one of the reporters who did have sources, I was like, I keep, I was like, by the way, like I'm, it was almost just in passing. I said, by the way, I think, you know, I keep coming across these pages. Will you ask your source about this? And he came back to me like 10 minutes later and said, oh, my God. He said, yes, that, that those pages that you're finding, these Black Lives Matter pages, some of them are Russian. And uh, I was like, oh, the, the sort of penny dropped in that we're like, wow, actually what was happening here was that Russia was not just running these pages for Trump. They were running all these sort of pages um, you know, racially, raci- pages about racial division, pages about social injustice in the United States. And, you know, as soon as we sort of told our bosses that, uh, that's really when the sort of CNN machine went into overdrive. I think it was like 3 p.m. on a Friday at that point, And they were like, OK, we want to break this news. And this was really at the height of, you know, when 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 everybody started investigating Russia, um, they said, okay, we want this story for 8 p.m. tonight for Anderson Cooper. Um, but, but what we have learned in, since then, and actually some of the pages we identified later went to become part of congressional testimony and in the Mueller investigation was, you know, these pages were being run uh, all across the board, pro-black pages, pro-white pages, pro-Second Amendment gun law pages, anti-Second Amendment, anything to, to try and uh, stir division uh, here in the U.S. And I think a question I get a lot is, well, what's, you know, what harm can a few Facebook pages do? You know, what, what's the big deal? But these are the precise tactics that, you know, governments use have been using for decades, right? But just adjusted to the age of social media. So that's it. It's like Cold War tactics. I mean, sowing seeds of discord is probably doing them, you know, that's doing it an, an injustice because it was so much more detrimental than that. Yeah. And in, in the case of Russia specifically, I mean, you think exactly, as you said, during the Cold War, um, uh, they tried to infiltrate activist groups, you know, the the, the, the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement. Uh, but obviously to do that back in the day, you'd have to oftentimes have a physical agent, an asset here in the United States, train them up undercover, uh, like for folks who've seen that TV show, The Americans. And no doubt that is still happening today. But now they have this ability to pose. And I mean, some of these pages were huge. Some of these pages had half a million followers. They were actually organizing real events in the United States, all sort of unwitting, uh, co-opting, unwitting, genuine activists to try and do some of their dirty work for them. That is extraordinary. And the, the problem is, you know, what happens on Facebook doesn't happen in an online vacuum. I think that's what the world um, has come to realize. You're kind of leading on to another area which I'm fascinated um, by, and that's QAnon, um, which obviously you're covering in depth as well, Donny. Do you want to tell our audience a little bit, bit about your reporting there? You might want to detail who QAnon are as well um, for, for any listeners that might not be up to speed yet. I think the world really is starting to realize, and particularly here in the US, that like social media and the real world are no longer two separate things. You know, what happens on social media, whether it's, you know, people being radicalized uh, to, to become mass shooters. Um, you know, we're seeing that more and more that people who are 
seeing uh, this sort of content online that make you know helps 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 sow hatred in their hearts uh, is is having an impact in the real world. Uh, QAnon um, is a crazy conspiracy theory um, uh, that that basically there is a poster, an anonymous poster, uh, who goes by the identity Q, uh, who purports to be a sort of government insider in the United in the US, and posts these cryptic messages, really of nonsense primarily claiming that many senior Democratic Party politicians, officials, Hollywood celebrities are pedophiles. And it's a very sort of pro-Trump conspiracy thing. It's been around for about three years. And, you know, for the most part, a lot of people ignored it. Uh, but it's really just snowballed. Uh, and particularly over the co- particularly over since we've all been locked up for COVID-19, a lot more people are on the internet with a lot more time on their hands. A lot of people are looking for answers. And this um, conspiracy theory has now sort of just, you know, uh, grown a life of its own. Um, and there are now people, Republicans, who are running for Congress who have expressed support uh, for QAnon. President Trump himself uh, hasn't has, has all but expressed support for it. He was asked about it one day, uh, and he said he thought QAnon followers were great people and, and all this. I was actually in California last weekend at a, a QAnon event where there was about 100, 150 people, and just people, you know, making outrageous claims, totally baseless, about everybody from Hillary Clinton to Tom Hanks. Uh, they're they're wow. convinced that that everybody's a pedophile. They used to be a fringe phenomena, but now they, they seem to be attaching themselves to other mainstream causes like the active and anti-vaccine movement and, and of course anti-child trafficking movement. Um so they seem to be constantly evolving, but that's a tactic, Donny, isn't that right? In order to get more followers. Um, even though I, I think some other followers don't realize what or who they're following when they have these, you know, hashtag save the children, save our children hosts. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, a lot of your listeners have probably seen people share the hashtag or share content on social media over the past few months with Save the Children. Save the Children is a real legit charity which has Mm. been around for 100 years. It has absolutely nothing to do with this online movement. These conspiracy theorists have basically uh, co-opted this charity's name uh, and obviously uh, 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 gripped onto this um, extremely emotive and serious and real issue of uh, child child abduction, sex trafficking, um, but they've used it. The conspiracy theorists have as a way to bring people in. It's a sort of it's a it's a it's a soft um, approach. Uh, it's a soft gateway, I guess, into these sort of crazier conspiracy theories. And what you have, and some of the people I met in California last week were people who, you know, have genuine concerns about children, about child safety. But once they are in, you know, once they click on this hashtag on Instagram or on Twitter or on Facebook, uh, you very quickly, you don't see statistics or at least real statistics about children that are going missing. You don't see uh, ways to actually help the real Save the Children charity or any real respectable charity at that point. All you see is you click on this, you see these images and memes of Hillary Clinton, of Joe Biden, uh, of all the Democrats. Um, so it's, 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 I mean, it's genius on the part of the conspiracy theorists because then you have people 
like me, uh, you know, some of the folks I was talking to, they said, why, why are you attacking Save the Children? Why would a CNN reporter come and tell us, you know, we're not doing a good thing by, by, by saying we want to save the children? And, it, you know, it, that, that is a very difficult because it's such an obviously an emotive and a real issue. It's a very hard one to tackle and tell people, well, actually, while your heart is in the right place, uh, you're being misled down this path, which, by the way, uh, the, the actual real organizations that work on this issue of child protection say that this whole thing has become such a major distraction. They are getting calls about, you know, uh, people who are convinced that, you know, this celebrity and this politician is doing X, Y and Z. And it's it's overwhelming them. It's crazy. I mean, it's it's terrifying and crazy. Um, I think you can talk about QAnon without talking about the big tech companies as well, Donny, which obviously you cover in force. So the likes of Twitter, Facebook and YouTube, who've, you know, they have amplified QAnon messages and they've recommended QAnon groups and pages to new p- people through their algorithms. I saw Facebook after three years have banned QAnon content. And I think today you were reporting about YouTube, who haven't quite banned them, but they kind of are prohibiting some of their content. Why can't they just ban this stuff outright? I mean, this is the case that we see over and over again with these companies, some of the richest companies in the world. You're right. uh, Facebook, uh, YouTube, Twitter have all in some form over the past few weeks or months said that they're now going to ban QAnon. But I mean, really, the horse has bolted at this point. We see that, you know, people have become radicalized and have been exposed to this. Um, They're just always behind the curve. I mean, the fact is they're not really incentivized, no matter what they tell you. They're not incentivized to really clean up their platforms. You know, I mean, they're making uh, a ton of money. Um, all they care about is the advertisers that people stay longer on the platform. And also, you know, this sort of crazy stuff, if you can get somebody hooked onto these conspiracy theories and people go down the rabbit holes, they're going to spend longer on your platform, meaning you're going to be able to sell them more ads, meaning you're going to be able to make uh, more money. So look, there are good people that work at some of these companies, don't get me wrong, and they're trying to do the right thing. But like the fundamentals of how Silicon Valley social media platforms are set up is not to be set up to be moderated Mm. in any way. Yeah, exactly. And that's a problem. Is there a story, Doni, um, that you're really rather proud of that's potentially had some impact? Yeah, I mean, look, I'm extremely uh, lucky uh, and privileged right now to be able to, you know, work for CNN and to travel around America and 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 cover the stories I cover, uh, but actually, I think the story that I'm probably most proudest of is actually long from long before I was ever being paid as a journalist. Uh, it was when I was back in college in in UCD in Dublin, and I was working for. There's two college newspapers at UCD. There's one which is sort of the um, student union, you know, student government paper, which is a broadsheet paper, or at least was when I was there and was very by the book and takes itself very seriously. And then there's sort of a tabloid rag independent paper that's just all the sort of misfits. And I was at the one for the misfits. I, I started covering the student union, which in, in American terms, I guess is student government. I view that as, I was like, okay, this is our job here in our little campus 
and Belfield and Dublin for. Uh, our role is to hold these guys to account, even though they're just students like ourselves with, you know, 18, 19, 20-year-olds who had no idea what they were doing, much like ourselves. But they did actually control uh, and were responsible for a, big, a lot of money. Like UCD is the biggest college in Ireland. I think about 25,000 students at the time. And as a result, they were getting some, I think they'd get 150 euro ahead from every student. So I think all in all, they had about 7 million euros was going through the students' union every year. They had professional staff who were supposed to be sort of the adults in the room watching this. But ultimately, the boss was the student union president, uh, who was normally, you know, a 19-year-old or 20-year-old who... You know, if you know anything about student politics, they're not often elected because they're uh, political geniuses. Sometimes it's because they're the guy who can drink the most. <laughs> I went to UCD Dhoni, so I'm very familiar. Yeah, I, possibly the only people who drink more than them were the student journalists. But I think it was I was in second year and I went to the, my first student union meeting. Uh, and it was where they were uh, talking about the yearly accounts. And they showed last year's accounts. Uh, and for a few million euro... They, all they had detailed was everything on uh, an, a double-sided piece of A4 paper. And, you know, it was stuff extremely vague. Like they had something like pencil and paper, 50 grand uh, spent on pencils, you know, something like that. And I remember asking at the time, just saying, what? I was like, is there like a fuller version of these accounts available? And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, we have last year's available. So I asked them a few times for it. I was like, okay, can we see the full accounts? And we never got it. But then the next year came around and the same thing happened again. They had this double-sided piece of paper uh, with the year's accounts on it. And so that's when we really started digging in. And we just started doing front page stories on, you know, where are the accounts? Uh, really got sort of everybody on the campus pretty interested about it because, you know, uh, this was this was students' money. As we asked more and more questions, the professional accountant, who was like a guy, I think maybe in his 40s or 50s, who was, had been employed by the students' union and, and the university, in fact, for a long time, he went on sick leave as we started asking more and more questions. Once he left, people, other people started picking up the phone in the accounting office. And it was all these creditors saying, uh, students union owes us 50 grand for this, 20 grand for this, your bill is overrun on this. An investigation was launched. And uh, by the end of our college year, it had all come out that about, I think, 1.9 million euro had gone missing. Was it just grossly mismanaged? Were some of the student elected student officials taking it was this guy taking it we we simply do not know uh but ucd that the university itself has a very sort of robust uh public relations team the students union is supposed to be independent and it is but you know there has to be the adult in the room was supposed to be this guy who was keeping an eye on the money to make sure things are above board and wow. it was a total total failure but uh, on their part so it was also quite scary because, uh, you know, it's like 20 years old or something and basically had both the students union and my own university sort of threatening us uh, to not report this or pressuring us in different ways about it. So it was it was it was certainly eye opening, but it definitely, I think, the one of the stories I'm I'm more proud of. 
Well, good for you, Donio Sullivan. I, and I'm not surprised in any way that you're even a thorn in people's side back in 2012. <laughs> that does not surprise me. But good for you. You obviously obviously got a real taste for investigative journalism and holding the powerful to account back then. So um, so good on you. Doni, last question, always a bit of crack. Um, but is there a crazy moment in your career thus far that has never quite made it to air that you'd like to tell our audience about? <laughs> well, I guess the past few years covering, you know, the sort of dark, murky world of conspiracy theories, uh, there's more and more crazy moments every day almost. But um, a few years ago, um, I noticed that um, I woke up one morning and there was a story about how the port of Charleston, uh, which is one of America, one of the biggest ports in America, had been closed down. Uh, for part of an evening because somebody had called in a bomb threat. And as I sort of just poked around on it a little bit, I started to see there was actually a lot of people tweeting in these YouTube videos, uh, people talking about this supposed bomb that was going to show up in this port. So as I dug into a bit, I was actually able to track down there was these bunch of conspiracy theorists who were streaming live on YouTube, just basically totally made up that there was a bomb. Uh, And the people, the few hundred or dozen people that were watching them on YouTube and believed them called up the port. And so I did a story, a pretty simple story, uh, to to just say, look, how a how a conspiracy theory had a real world impact. Uh, and of course, the conspiracy theorists on YouTube were not very happy uh, that I had called them out in this way. Um, and it was, you know, you get pushback on that all the time. Um, but a few months later, uh, I was uh, my phone started blowing up. I was in the office at CNN. It was two or three months after after we did the story. My phone started blowing up all these tweets. Uh, basically, the guy, the conspiracy theorist, who I think at the time was living in Ohio or something like that, he had shown up in New York uh, trying to come find me and was streaming live on YouTube doing it. And he was walking through Central Park saying, I'm on my way to CNN to confront uh, Donnie O'Sullivan, or he kept calling me Donnie O'Sullivan. Um, and uh, yeah, so obviously that happened, you know, when that happens, CNN takes that pretty seriously. Uh, he sh- he kept showing up, I think, for, I think he came for two days, but, uh, you know, they, they helped me with uh, different security precautions and things like that. And uh, it eventually, thankfully, blew over what is uh, uh, interesting about that same guy um, you know, I I, w- I wasn't actively tracking him. Uh, you know that th- this actually happened three years ago, but he came back into my life uh, just earlier this year at the start of COVID uh, because I came across a case of a woman, a U.S. Army reservist, who um, was being blamed by conspiracy theorists, by but also by the Ch- Chinese Communist Party uh, for starting COVID nineteen. Um, oh my god! I forgot about this story. I totally forgot about this story. Oh, this yeah. is mental. The um and and she was being blamed as part of this conspiracy theory. Obviously, we know COVID nineteen started in China, um, but as part of this conspiracy theory, you know, it it didn't start in China. It was actually a U.S. biological weapon, and it was brought to China uh, by this woman, um, which was obviously totally false. Uh, to give some context. Uh, just before you know the COVID outbreak uh, in, in of, of in 2019 in China initially, 
there was the World Military Games, which is like sort of the the Olympics for the army. And the US had a team out there and it was in Wuhan. Uh, but this was before the, the outbreak. And this woman, uh, Mahia Benassi, was competing. She's a cyclist. She's a mom. Uh, she's in her 40s or 50s. Um, she was out there competing. Basically, out of no, you know, and I'd like, sometimes these conspiracy theories are pretty complicated where you'll say, oh, this is why they chose this woman. This one isn't. They just decided that she was going to be the woman that they blame. Um, and they started totally upending her life. These American conspiracy theorists were saying, no, it's a U.S. biological weapon. She started it. Then the Chinese government, who, of course, want to uh, further narrative and distract from the point that, you know, China uh, is where the virus started, uh, also latched onto that, uh, which resulted in this woman, um, you know, being harassed, uh, her getting death threats, um, her life being totally turned upside down. She's a private citizen. As I started looking into the story, lo and behold, the guy who really was pushing this conspiracy was the same conspiracy theorist who shut down uh, this port three years ago, who came looking for me three years ago. Um, and so I actually called him up this time and we did a thing where we confronted him. Uh, you know, uh, it was COVID, so it was over the phone and stuff. Um, but I think that also just underscores your earlier question too, is this guy has been on YouTube, has been on all these social media platforms spouting this bullshit for three years. You know, and nobody stopped him and he's upending lives. And this woman, Mahia Benassi, and her husband, Matt, were pleading with YouTube. They were reporting it every day. You know, you see all these functions where you can report abuse on social media platforms. Most times it doesn't work. Only after, uh, when CNN's story published, only after that did YouTube do anything about it. Only after our story published, and a U.S. senator uh, from Virginia, which is the state where, where the, the Benassis live, uh, you know, called up YouTube. Only then did they act. So it just goes to show you that like, the, the, the scales are totally tipped in favor of the conspiracy theorists, of the, of, the, of the harassers online. And for regular people like the Benassis, you know, they have nowhere to turn. I mean, they really didn't know what to do. Yeah. Well, that's exactly why we need you and your journalism, Doni. So thank you so much um, for coming on the podcast. Before I let you go, Doni, um, obviously you've, you've conducted this interview in your CNN accent. I've conducted this interview in my, <laughs> what my, my husband calls my channel four accent. But I thought you might just say, um, you know, thanks for having me on the podcast, Shauna, in your actual Cara Sabine accident, accent, not accident, <laughs> just to um, let our, you know, read reiterate to our audience that you're actually from County Kerry. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. Good man, Tony. You're a great sport. Thanks a million. <laughs> if you liked what you heard on this episode of Media Tribe, tune in next week as I'll be dropping new shows every week with all sorts of legendary folk from the industry. And if you could leave me a review and rating, that would be really appreciated. Also, get in touch on social media at Shauna on Twitter or at Shauna Kinnear on Instagram and feel free to suggest new guests. Right, that's it. Until next week, see you then. This episode is edited by Ryan Ferguson. 